0: From KQED.
1: Before we start, just wanted to give you a heads up that this episode references drug use and a violent homicide. If you or someone you know needs support, we've got links to resources in the episode description.
2: Nine days after Valentino Rodriguez died, Valentino's family held a viewing and then a memorial mass.
1: We had mass outside underneath a big oak tree at the local uh, grammar Catholic school.
2: After the mass, Val Sr. and his other son, Gregory, and some of the other guys in the family carried the casket to the hearse.
1: We put him inside and then we took our gloves off and left them on the casket with the flour. I could have sat there all day. Even though he was in that box, I, I knew he was there and I knew he was close. Yeah. And
0: then we had a, a celebration of life after, but we had that celebration of life at the same place where we had our wedding. <laughs>
2: Family and friends were there, setting up food and talking to each other.
0: I just remember just sitting there, like with my arms crossed, just looking into the crowd, like I was dancing right there with him. You know?
2: It was difficult to wrap her head around.
0: I just looked past all of it. I was like, what are we celebrating?
2: And I was just so hurt. And I just went home and just screamed. Val Sr. tells my colleague, Julie Small, he was also overwhelmed.
1: I, I ended up finding my way to a corner, away from people and just a small group of cousins and friends. And they opened up a bottle of tequila and I just drank. And then uh, after that, I didn't feel anything. You <laughs> know, and That was helpful.
3: When did you first see Sergeant Steele?
1: After they closed the casket, uh, people were were lining up to hug us. I noticed I seen somebody out of place.
2: A man, bald, with piercing blue eyes, stood a little ways back in the line. And Val had the sense that he was intent on getting to the front.
1: As he got got closer, I I could see his face was sad. Uh, But he just seemed so strong, you know, coming up. I still didn't know his name. But he grabbed my shoulders and he, and he said, if you need me for anything, I can help you.
4: Test, test. The
1: wrong here, May 1st, 2019.
5: Just to be clear, here's saying You're good when you go
2: through. When a death is so unexpected and its timing feels so coincidental, it's bound to raise questions. Some of them are big and unknowable. But there are others that do have answers. In the days after his son's funeral, Val Sr. began to look for them. And what he didn't know yet is that he'd find a partner in that pursuit. A man who also wanted justice for Valentino, but whose mission also went far beyond that. I'm Suki Lewis. This is On Our Watch, season two, New Folsom. A couple weeks after the funeral, the results of the coroner's investigation had come back. It determined that Valentino had accidentally overdosed on fentanyl and notes smoking paraphernalia was found at the scene. But to Val Sr., that just answered the question of what killed him, but not why or where the lethal drug had come from.
1: My agenda was to find out the source of the fentanyl, where it came from.
2: Val Sr., with help from his wife, Irma, started going through Valentino's phone records, tracking where he went on the last day of his life, and all the people he spoke to.
1: I had her identify every number, whether they're clients of Val's from our company or friends or whoever. Mm. I just wanted to track uh, what he was doing uh, 24 hours before that and all the way up to his death.
2: In his living room, Val Sr. shows me the call log from Valentino's provider. It's got Irma's handwriting on it. She's written people's names next to the phone numbers they were able to identify. I asked Val Senior about one name that keeps popping up. We bleeped it for legal reasons. So who's...
1: There's a, a guy in the neighborhood.
2: What was, what was his relationship with?
1: He, sold, he sells drugs. So oh, really? I to visit him, yeah. You know?
2: This guy was a man who lived nearby, who'd known Valentino a long time. He'd even been invited to the wedding. But according to Val Sr. and according to text messages in Valentino's phone, he was also someone who could get you pain pills. This man did not agree to go on the record with us, and because these are potentially criminal allegations, we'll just call him a guy from the neighborhood. On the last day of his life, Valentino made six short calls to this guy's number.  —
1: — You can see they're all mm-hmm. one-minute, one-minute, like…
2: Yeah. — so Val Sr. thinks maybe he couldn't get through, and he tried someone else.
1: — He calls this number here. — right. It's a burn phone.
2: — He calls it a burner phone, but we don't actually know if that's true. We do know these calls came in from numbers that were not in Valentino's contacts. We tried calling these numbers, too, and one goes to a generic voicemail. We left a message, but no one got back to us. The other was associated with the nearby Air Force Base, but we weren't able to identify why anyone would be calling him from that number. These calls to the guy from the neighborhood, from unknown numbers, for Val Sr., these were clues that could lead to the source of the fentanyl. But he needed help.
1: The West Sacramento Police Department was the first people that I tried to push to find out where this came from. I needed someone to search his phone records, burn phones. Where'd this come from?
2: He thought the police, who'd collected evidence the night Valentino died— you know, ring cameras, his medication, his gun— would be looking on the streets for the source of the fentanyl. But there was another possibility that Val Sr. couldn't shake.
1: If it didn't come from the street, then where'd it come from?
2: Had the fentanyl come from someone at the prison? And as Val Sr. went through Valentino's phone himself, it was this possibility that seemed to gain more and more weight. He read through his son's texts, and there was the harassment and slurs, but he also found messages between Valentino and other officers that appeared to be about secrets being kept. —— evidence lockers being left open, an emoji of a red and yellow pill. We still don't know exactly what these text messages meant, but Velsenor couldn't help wondering, was this evidence that other officers knew about Valentino's drug problem and used it as leverage in some way? And who else knew that Valentino had been in the warden's office just days before he died? Velsenor knew at least one person who did. Sergeant Kevin Steele, the man who'd hugged him at his son's funeral and offered to help, the man who'd also texted Valentino on the last day of his life.
1: So I remember sitting in my office trying to concentrate on working and...
2: He tells my colleague, Julie, that he decided to send Steele a text.
1: So I asked him, are you still running the race?
3: What were you thinking when you first sent Steele that text message?
1: It meant that Kevin found out that Val had came forward to turn in some uh, information of corruption. um, That there's two sides over there. And Val talks about the two sides. And he talks about it in in that text message that he doesn't want anyone on this side or that side to know that he came forward.
2: That text message goes on. Valentino says, quote, It took a lot out of me to relive the truth. In reply, Steele writes, quote, Dude, you are my superhero. It is bad right now. Stay strong. I got you. Steele. Reading these text messages after Valentino's death, Velsenior didn't yet know exactly who was on the other side. But it appeared at least Steele was on the side of his son. Did you trust Sergeant Steele when you first met him?
1: My fillers came up right away, and I just couldn't find any reason not to. I, I had just realized that. Whether I trust him or not, this is a way for me to um, get my voice over there. You know, over where? To that prison. I'm gonna start by talking to somebody, because nobody's talking to me.
2: Val senior says that day in his office, Steele texted him back right away. "Quote: Valentino's voice will never be silenced. I promise." And Steele, again, offered his help.
1: He always said that he would facilitate anything I needed, you know, as far as who to contact.
2: Steele had worked for CDCR for about 20 years when he met Val Sr. And he'd risen to the rank of sergeant and was in the investigative services unit, the squad at New Folsom. People who worked with him say he was really respected, and he had a lot of responsibilities, from drug testing officers to leading annual trainings.
1: He used to tell me that he would get there uh, 30 minutes before to start working and wouldn't even clock in. He said, "I I just love my job.
2: He also had a lot of connections. As part of his role in the ISU prepping criminal cases and evidence, he communicated with the district attorney's office, the FBI, and the prison's internal affairs team on big investigations. This world of the prison and law enforcement that Val Sr. was just dipping his toe in, it was the water that Steele swam in every day. And so, when someone from CDCR got in touch, Valsenia turned to Steele to help him decide who to trust.
1: I asked him who Chris McGraw was.
2: Over text, Steele told him, McGraw is a special agent from CDCR's Office of Internal Affairs. And not just a local guy from New Folsom, but from headquarters.
1: I asked him, are they good guys? Because I didn't know who to reach out to or who to turn to.
2: Steele responded, quote, Yes, that is the best course to move forward, Steele. Just a note, in case you've noticed, yes, Steele signs his text messages.
1: He said they were were good guys, and I just told him, I'm trusting you, Steele.
2: With Steele's assurance, Felsenor talked to McGraw, who he says told him to file a formal written complaint.
1: He told me that the first thing you have to do is send a complaint that way you'll have Uh, rights.
2: McGraw did not respond to our request for comment. Valsenior says he gave McGraw a digital copy of his son's phone. Internal Affairs would focus on the allegation that officers in the ISU discriminated against Valentino and harassed him, which could result in discipline or firing, or even a criminal referral if investigators found officers broke the law. Steele also put Val Sr. in contact with another agency, the FBI.
1: Kevin gave me some cards and said, hey, you need to talk to this guy, Val, he'll help you.
2: If there was a public corruption element to Valentino's case, if somehow Valentino had been targeted by other officers aiming to silence him, if officers abused their position for their own gain in some other way, the FBI would be the ones to look into it. In December, Valsenior handed off Valentino's physical phone to an FBI agent named Sean Lister.
1: I straight up told him I feel that the fentanyl was sent to get rid of him because he knew of a lot of bad things. And he goes, that would be interesting. I says, well, it would be interesting, but very hard to prove.
2: Valsenior says he got the sense the FBI weren't really that interested in his son's case. But Steele had a lot of faith in both internal affairs and the feds.
1: He always thought that they were going to do something right. And in my mind, I was thinking, no, no, they're
2: not. But at this point, Val Sr. has communicated with three different agencies about different aspects of the case. He'd spoken to the West Sacramento police to see if they were looking for the source of the fentanyl on the street. He'd filed a formal written complaint about Valentino's harassment with the Office of Internal Affairs and he'd handed the phone to the FBI. If there was a public corruption element, the FBI could investigate.
1: One day, Kevin told me, hey, Val. I go, yeah. He goes, you know, this story is much bigger than your son. And I says, I know. I realize that.
2: And Steele started to share with Val Sr. what he'd been communicating about with the FBI.
1: His biggest agenda was that homicide that took place.
2: The stabbing of Luis Giovanni Aguilar in the day room. That video that Valentino had shown his dad at the Christmas party.
1: Kevin told me that he told Sean Lister that that was a perfect murder.
2: The FBI special agent Sean Lister.
1: And I was thinking in my head, what, my son? But Kevin told me, no, um, the perfect murder was this homicide that had happened on the B-8 homicide, he called it.
2: Steele called it the B-8 homicide because that was the name of the housing unit at New Folsom where it happened. We reached out to Special Agent Lister, but he declined to comment on the case. The FBI says they can't comment, but an agent did confirm the investigation is still pending.
0: Support for KQED podcasts comes from SFMOMA. Calling all music lovers, don't miss Art of Noise, the must see exhibition of the summer. Pour over 800 works, including 1960s and 70s concert posters, hi fi listening experiences, and more. On view now. Get tickets at sfmoMA.org.
1: Hey, KQED listeners. I'm right now as podcast host, Pindarvis Harshaw. Dropping a line to invite you to a summer evening of live contemporary jazz at the KQED headquarters in San Francisco. Thursday, June 20th at 7 p.m. We've got a stacked lineup of dope musicians, including vocalist Jamie Z, saxophonist Lydia Rodriguez, and harpist Destiny Muhammad. And Newsflash is the closing event for our podcast. We've had a great run, so help us celebrate the end of this chapter. Get tickets to Liner Notes Live at kqed.org events.
2: To understand some of the reasons why Sergeant Kevin Steele may have thought the homicide of Luis Giovanni Aguilar was worth reporting to the FBI, Julie and I got on a Zoom call with this woman. i um, recording in progress. My name is Claudia Borquez and um,
4: I'm an attorney. Luis Giovanni Aguilar is uh, my, my client's
2: son. Aguilar's mother is pursuing a lawsuit against prison officials, including the officers who were on duty in the unit that day.
4: Either they weren't there, or they were deliberately indifferent, they didn't care uh, what was going on, or, as we allege, they,
2: they planned it. They were part of it. In court filings, prison officials deny these allegations. A CDCR spokesperson said there is an active investigation involving outside law enforcement and that the agency cannot comment on this case. At the time, B-8 was a super high-security segregation unit, the type that is often used to hold people who are considered especially violent or dangerous or as a punishment for people who've committed new crimes while in prison. They're generally held in solitary cells. Anytime time they're out of their cell, they're handcuffed, they're shackled. — Claudia
4: explains the day of the murder. — Basically on that day, December 12, 2019, three men— — Mr. Aguilar and the other two inmates who, who participated in the static, Anthony Rodriguez and Cody Taylor—
2: — were brought down the stairs from their cells on the second tier of the unit into the day room, an open area with fixed desks and chairs on the first floor, outside the lower tier cells. All three were shackled by their ankles to metal chairs.
4: Our allegation is that the two inmates, Rodriguez and Taylor, uh, were able to uncuff themselves, free themselves, and that they ran up uh, or walked up the stairs to um, another cell that was on the second floor and retrieved
2: weapons. They got makeshift metal knives from the cell of a man named Dion Green, who was a shot caller in the prison. Taylor and Rodriguez then came back down the stairs. And um,
4: proceeded to stab my client to death more than 55 times.
2: And no officer used deadly force to stop them. The lawsuit that Claudia filed claims Aguilar was targeted by officers in retaliation for attacking a guard about a week before he was killed. — And there are three big pieces of evidence or arguments the lawsuit relies on to back up its allegations, what I call the rumor, the practice run, and the BRIT case. First off, there was the rumor. The lawsuit claims that officers spread a rumor that Aguilar was a child sex offender.
4: It's common knowledge that um, inmates that go in as child molesters, sex offenders, get treated very badly in prison. They don't like sex offenders. They especially don't like child sex offenders.
2: The lawsuit alleges that officers did this on purpose, to put a target on Aguilar's back.
4: How do we get some inmates to help us out and get this guy, Aguilar? Well, let's tell them he's a sex offender.
2: Then they'll go go along with it. Prison officials have denied that officers spread this rumor in court filings. And to be clear, Aguilar was in prison for stealing a vehicle and fleeing police. He also had an earlier conviction for domestic violence. But our review of his criminal record from CDCR found no convictions for child molestation or sexual offenses. Secondly, there was the practice run. One of the inmates who actually, who was
4: one of the inmates who stabbed my client, he, a week earlier, in the same day room, had taken off his restraints, from the day room, the chair, and gone upstairs um, and come back down. and
2: um, So basically like, okay, I'm going to try this, see what happens if I take off my restraints and go up and get it or something.
4: Yeah, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I can't really explain it other than it was done. And again, no repercussions seem to have
2: come from it. This was captured by surveillance cameras in the unit, according to sources who've seen the video. A man slipping out of his shackles in full view of the control booth. Again, this is in a restricted unit where no one's allowed to go anywhere without an officer escort and restraints. The final big anomaly Claudia references in the suit is the Brit case, an incident that at the very least should have put prison officials on notice. Two months before the Aguilar murder, the same three men—Taylor, Rodriguez, and Green—coordinated a nearly identical attempted murder of a man named Michael Britt. Taylor and Rodriguez slipped their shackles and stabbed him repeatedly in the day room. Dion Green claimed responsibility, saying he ordered the hit. Britt was an enemy of his. Britt was—he wasn't killed, but he was assaulted very badly. By the same guys. And so, have you—do you have any idea, like, how they were allowed to remain together at the same facility? No. This was kind of shocking. These three men had clearly conspired to kill someone and proven they could outsmart the security measures, even in a restricted unit like this. But the prison didn't separate the men or move them to a different area— A CDCR spokesperson told me that they have a robust system to keep enemies apart and that, as a general matter, they do separate people they identify as crime partners. CDCR would not comment on why this did not happen in this case. This was horrific. This was unfair. This should have never happened. It just should have never happened. The lawsuit against CDCR is ongoing. From internal records and what he told Val Sr., it seems like Steele had gotten involved in the case as he usually did. It was his job to prep the evidence for criminal charges against Green, Rodriguez, and Taylor for the district attorney. The official explanation that was reflected in Valentino's report was that it was a gang killing. But as Steele looked through the evidence and talked to the suspects, he began to discover these anomalies and have doubts about that as a motive. And it seems like Steele did what he always did. He reported what he was finding to prison leaders and to the FBI. But now, more than a year after the murder, he told Val Sr. he was frustrated. Prison officials weren't taking his allegations seriously.
1: Sometimes he was so uh, passionate about what was going on and angry that he couldn't bottle it. And he would just tell me. And, and I would listen.
2: Val Sr. listened to him, but he says all these incidents and details of the homicide, that was all Steele's agenda.
1: Uh, I'll be really honest, I, I just didn't care. I, mine was, I want to know why the hell Val wrote this.
2: It wasn't unusual for someone in Valentino's position to be tapped to write a report like this. But Val Sr. still questioned why he was picked on this particular case. There were other officers in the gang unit who'd collected evidence right after Aguilar was killed.
1: They've been here for 15 years. They're the ones that write this stuff. They were there that night, but they gave it to him. Why?
2: As Val Senior learned more about the homicide from Steele and the evidence of a potential conspiracy involving officers, he had to wonder if writing that report was connected to his son's death.
1: Who told him to? You know, why they, they encouraged him to? and congratulated him as airtight. That's what I wanted to know.
2: What Val Sr. is referring to are these text messages on Valentino's phone from two supervisors in the ISU. They appear to be coaching him about how to establish the connection between the homicide and the gang motive. Once he turns the report in, his boss texts again, saying gang investigators were happy with his report and had called it, quote, airtight. From one angle, these texts could be innocent, just a boss giving their subordinate direction and encouragement. But to Val Sr., everything was beginning to look suspect.
1: My son's passing was very coincidental, and it benefited some really bad people.
2: Because if Valentino had inside knowledge that officers played a role in Aguilar's homicide, that knowledge died with him.
1: Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
2: After Valentino Rodriguez died, his wife Mimi couldn't stay in their house. But bit by bit, she did start the hard task of going through their stuff.
0: A friend of mine at the time, she came with me to the house to help just clear things out. I mean, we just found so many Empty baggies. And I was just, I was distraught. And she was shocked. It was right in front of me, but I didn't didn't know what I was looking for. Little plastic, twisted up baggies that were ripped at the end. There was so many of them. And I just remember being so angry at myself, like, why didn't I see this before? Why didn't I notice something, why didn't I push more?
2: Another time, she and Valentino's sister, Monique, had a plan to rip out the old carpets in the house.
0: That day I felt like crap. And I texted her, I said, Monique, I'm so sorry, I, I I, can't go today. It's just been hard. And she texted back like, it's okay, it's hard every day. But she went and ripped it up, and I remember the carpets were thrown out on the side of the house, and there's a sliding door there. And I went out there just to look at the carpets, there was a little balloon there, a little black balloon. And I was like, what the heck? What is this? So I grab it and I open it because I'm curious and there's just white powder in there. And I got scared. So I call Val Sr. and I go, I found something. And he goes, what is it? And he immediately came to the house and I showed him. I was like, what is this? He's like, where did you find it? And I was like, it was, it was sitting blank, just right there on the floor next to the carpet's.
2: She gave Valsignor the balloon, along with some white pills she'd found while cleaning out the kitchen. They were slid all the way in the corner in the back of, like, a box of oatmeal That wasn't open. To Valsignor, the pills, the black balloon, it all looked like evidence. Evidence from the prison, or evidence that might be tied to his son's death. Thanks to his son's work as an investigator, Val Sr. knew that in prison, drugs are often wrapped in balloons into little packages called bindles that can be passed from person to person, swallowed, and then later fished out of the toilet, hopefully still protected by the plastic balloon. When he died, Valentino hadn't worked at the prison for nine months. So what was he doing with this bindle in his house? Bell Sr. says he went to the three different agencies he believed were investigating different aspects of his son's death. CDCR, the West Sacramento Police Department, and the FBI.
1: I told each one of them that I I found this this drug bindle. It's from the prison. Well, how do you know? Because my son's, that's what he did. Did
3: Uh, anybody take uh, possession of the bindle? No agency that was investigating.
1: They don't even want to talk about it. I remember it was in the, in the afternoon at work. Irma had ran in with her phone and said, Val, Val, I got him on the phone, because I, I wasn't having any luck with anybody.
2: It was the West Sacramento police chief on the phone. Val Sr. asked the chief what they were doing. Had they made any progress finding the source of the fentanyl? But the chief said his department wasn't investigating.
1: I began to get emotional on the phone and told him, you guys don't care about him. He was a whistleblower. This is what happened. That was what happened. And he goes, Val, we do care about your son.
2: We spoke to the West Sacramento police chief later, and he confirmed that he spoke with Val Sr. But they have very different memories of what was said in this conversation. According to what Val Sr. remembers...
1: That's when he told me I was told not to investigate. It's plain simple. I'm not going to lie about that. Um, I says, well, so there's not, uh, there's not an investigation? He goes, not, not with us.
2: According to the chief, he never said they were told not to investigate. The police had not found any evidence of a crime at the scene, and their policy at the time was not to do a further investigation of accidental overdose cases.
1: I says, so just look for the source of the fentanyl. I can do that. I have everything. You know, I have his phone records. And that's when he told me about... They're not looking on the streets.
3: What did it mean to you when the police chief said, they're not looking on the streets?
1: That meant exactly what I was thinking, that they're looking into the prison to see if it came from there. That's, that's the way I took it.
2: Val Senior took this to mean that they meant the feds and internal affairs. And this statement from the chief was a signal that while the police investigation was closed, those agencies were still investigating his son's death, and that those agencies thought the source of the fentanyl was inside New Folsom Prison. The chief told us Val misunderstood him, that he meant something much more procedural, that the prison would not be the ones to look on the streets. That just wasn't their jurisdiction. Without a recording of this call, it's impossible to know whose version is accurate. But whatever was really said during this call, what Val Sr. took away from it was an acknowledgement of his suspicions, that everything he uncovered pointed back to New Folsom, and a belief that someone was still looking into the source of the fentanyl.
1: And I wept when I started talking. I I think they killed him, you know? I think they sent that shit.
2: Valsinier really had no one to talk to about his suspicions and fears except for Sergeant Steele. The two men had bonded over their shared grief, and they began to share other aspects of their lives. Steele told Valsignor about his time in the military.
1: He served a, a couple of terms in Iraq.
2: They shared their faith.
1: He would send me scripture, I'd send him scripture.
2: And country music songs.
1: I mean, he's, he was uh, like the complete package. And uh, we we had a a lot of stuff in common.
2: They were around the same age in their 50s and both loved antique cars.
1: He used to call me his kindred spirit all the time.
2: But Val Senior says there was an undercurrent to their relationship. He could feel that steel was torn.
1: He was feeling that it was his civil duty to be on my side, my son's side. I got the impression but at the same time, he, he was still an officer who, with Folsom Prison.
2: And that conflict was heating up.
0: Hi there, Sergeant Steele, Special Agent Chris McGraw calling you again.
1: February. The 8th,
2: Since Valentino's death, Steele had received multiple now. direct orders from the warden and from that internal affairs agent, Chris McGraw.
1: To immediately cease all forms of communication with all members of the Rodriguez family unless I am present or if I am participating in the communication along with you. uh,
2: CDCR did not want Steele talking to Val Sr. or anyone else in his family.
1: Um, Please review your email. I will send you a follow-up email.
2: This was an order that Steele disobeyed. And the reason we have this voicemail is because he sent it to Val Sr.
1: Thank you so much and have a good day.
2: That decision to stay in contact with Val Sr. in defiance of his superiors would have far-reaching implications for Steele's job and his life. And from what we know of Steele, it seems probable that he didn't make that decision lightly. According to multiple people who knew him well, each of the steps that Steele took were governed by his exacting and deeply held principles and feeling of duty.
1: He was an officer. He took an oath and he was just doing what an officer should do, you know, and be just. That was his job.
2: And as 2020 turned to 2021, that feeling of duty led him to do something radical. On January 4th, he sent a memo to the warden. Here's Julie. The
3: subject line is, ISU Entrenched Corruption and Uninhibited Harassment.
2: It's a document that we requested from CDCR, but so far the agency has not disclosed it. But we did get a copy from Val Sr. Steele shared it with him. It's nine pages long, so we're not gonna read all of it. But Steele talks about ISU staff claiming false overtime. Rodriguez also shared details of how some of the
3: ISU officers would plant drugs and weapons on inmates in an effort to have to work overtime hours to finish the reports.
2: And he writes that Valentino told him that ISU officers would threaten to plant drugs in places that would get him in trouble.
3: This was used as a point of leverage to keep C.O. Rodriguez from reporting these unscrupulous behaviors.
2: He writes a lot about Valentino's boss, Sergeant David Anderson, and how Steele also felt harassed and intimidated by him. Sergeant Anderson called me a snake in front of other ISU IGI officers. Anderson did not respond to multiple requests for comment. But while significant, Steele's allegations go far beyond the dysfunction of the ISU squad. It's clear Steele is a person who keeps track. Like a prosecutor building his case, he lays out these bullet points. Inmates
3: discovered at the hospital with injuries inconsistent.
2: Incarcerated people with broken ribs, head injuries, and busted teeth. For
3: example, mental health staff asphyxiation, carbon monoxide poisoning, mailroom staff drug overdose and deceased, suicidal staff times two... An alarming
2: number of employees in crisis.
3: CSP Sacramento was sending more water instead of urine for testing than any other institution.
2: A dangerously inadequate drug testing program...
3: The 2019 B 8 homicide inconsistencies were immediately. Brought.
2: And the murder of Luis Giovanni Aguilar. The list touches on nearly every aspect of the institution. His language is forceful. He names names and points fingers.
3: You should consider the very likely possibility that during your superintendence of CSP Sacramento, more staff will be charged for criminal activity than any other institution within the state.
2: CDCR said Warden Jeff Lynch cannot speak to us about personnel matters. A spokesperson said the agency takes all allegations of officer misconduct seriously and has a process to make sure all complaints are, quote, "...properly, fairly, and thoroughly reviewed." They did not respond to specific questions about whether Steele's allegations in this memo were investigated. When Julie and I read through this memo, we were pretty stunned— How startling of a document is this in comparison, you know, to what you've seen over your years of reporting? I mean, the allegations
3: about ordering murders are are very shocking. To have a correctional officer, a high-ranking sergeant in an investigative unit releasing this kind of uh, detailed report about misconduct, illegal activity, even murder— I don't know of another time that that's happened.
2: Mm-hmm. We'd been trying to understand the system from the outside, and it was amazing to discover there'd been someone trying to expose it from the inside, and he'd left behind this memo like a map for us to follow. The first step was into our own files. We'd built up a database of hundreds of internal records and dozens of recordings related to violent and even deadly use of force incidents. All the stuff that was supposed to be public record under a new transparency law, but that we'd spent the past four years fighting and even suing for. When we cross-referenced the names from Steele's memo with our database, we discovered that we had those cases in our files. And we realized that his memo could help us unlock the meaning of these incidents, the patterns that they showed. There were three names in particular of incarcerated people who ended up in the hospital with injuries that didn't make sense. We decided to try and contact them. One of them had died, but it looked like two of them were still in prison. And so I wrote to them. Dear Mr. Navarro, Dear Mr. Urime, I'm a reporter with the NPR station. I received some records from CDCR that detail an yours, incident badly injured, on March 31st, On May 2nd, 2017. Please give me a call at the number below or send me a letter. I put these letters in the mail and hoped someone would call me back.
3: Did Kevin know that handing in that memo would probably end his career?
1: He didn't seem concerned when he sent that. He didn't say, oh, man, this is going to end my career. He just felt that he was doing the right thing and there wasn't a problem with it, to be really honest. So he didn't see beyond that. Mm-hmm. And it was weird because I did. I definitely knew he was en- he was ending his, his career with CDCR. He had other priorities. He had other obligations, and that was to tell the truth. He just had tunnel vision for that.
2: Senior remembers Steele reading the memo to him over the phone.
1: I says, holy smokes, it's very powerful. The walls are going to fall, you know, and it didn't.
2: We don't know exactly how the warden reacted when he got Steele's memo in his inbox. But we do know Steele decided he was done with the institution and it was time for him to leave. So we put together a plan. He was going to move across the country to Miller County in Missouri, a place he'd visited as a reserve officer for the Air Force, a place where he hoped no one could find him. But he wasn't quitting. He'd accrued a ton of leave that he'd never taken. He'd use that up and then retire. Before he left town, Val Sr. and his wife Irma invited Steele to come over to the house for a barbecue. We made tri-tip and we had our kids there. We gave him a little gift. He was there with his
3: wife, Lily, and his dad. So my parents were there, my mother-in-law and my kids. And we just sat around and talked. And he was talking to everybody and his wife was talking to
5: everyone.
1: He just glowed, man. Just just how he was. He just was so polite and respectable and considerate. And he just moved around, and I just, eh, I don't have to talk to him, because he was just, like, just talking to everybody. So that was cool for me, because I was cooking. I was busy.
2: After they ate, Val Sr. presented him with a plaque that he'd had made, a clear pyramid with a photo of his son Valentino inside, and a brass nameplate. Steele had always called Valentino a superhero.
1: So I put on here, from your superhero to my kindred spirit picture. And he cried, and then... uh He had a hard time talking. (laughs) So so then he got in the the car and left after that.
2: Steele and his wife and their dogs made their way across the country to Miller County. The two men were now nearly 2,000 miles away from each other. But in their talks on the phone, they grew even closer.
1: He would even tell me, I love you, you know, which was kind of odd for me as a man. We just, I didn't grow up, you know throwing that word around. <laughs> and I don't think he did either, you know, but uh, I remember one day I walked in and I had him on speakerphone. And he goes, I love you, man. And I go, okay. And I, go, okay. And I hung up.
2: Irma overheard the whole thing. Like, why don't you say I love you back? <laughs> uh, I'm just not that kind of person. <laughs> and I just, he feels, it. yeah,
4: he just feels
2: weird. <laughs> I think you ended up saying it one time, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I told him, um, that felt funny, but I told him, I love you, buddy.
5: <laughs>
2: In fact, Valsignor was one of the few people who knew where Steele was living. Steele didn't feel safe. He told people he was close to that after he'd confronted prison leaders with evidence he'd collected about officer misconduct, he'd been getting weird text messages and vaguely threatening voicemails from unknown numbers. — In his calls with Val Sr., Steele talked about how easy it would be for his enemies to hire someone to kill him. But if they came, he was prepared. He had guns and two Doberman pinchers. So those fears didn't stop him. He'd left California, but he hadn't abandoned his friend or their mission.
1: He assured me that he would be able to work laterally and do more outside the prison. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand what he meant by that.
2: In February 2021, Steele fired off another memo, this one addressed to the head of the entire state agency, Secretary Kathleen Allison. It's about what he calls the corruption and failed leadership at New Folsom. This memo has fewer details, but the focus is on the inaction of higher-ups, how multiple supervisors were aware of the harassment Valentino received and failed to do anything about it. No staff member or person should have been
3: the victim of what correctional officer Rodriguez endured at the hands of CSP Sacramento
2: ISU office supervisors and staff members. And in his writing, you can really feel Steele's frustration and even more than that, the betrayal. He'd been a true believer.
3: I am not a disgruntled employee seeking vengeance. Instead, I was a witness to an ISU which became engulfed in corruption and watched as integrity was forced to cower in terror and fear of retaliation.
2: Around the same time this memo was sent, a notice was posted at the entrance gate of New Folsom Prison. Beneath a photograph of Steele's face, it states, Effective immediately, Kevin Steele is not to be permitted on institution grounds. CDCR did not respond to questions about why Steele was banned from the prison. Steele himself would come to find out he was under investigation by internal affairs. He felt he had no choice but to work outside the system he'd been a part of for 20 years. The two men, Val Sr. and Kevin Steele, with their twin agendas— started working to expose the prison and put pressure on those supposedly ongoing investigations in another way, this time through the press. How did you come to that decision?
1: That was a hard decision to make.
2: Val Sr. tells Julie at first he wanted to give prison officials and law enforcement the chance to investigate.
1: So I waited, and then finally I I just got tired of waiting. So I made the call.
2: — He spoke to a newspaper reporter named Wes Venteicher, who worked at the local paper, the Sacramento Bee. He now writes for Politico. Wes says he'd covered prisons before, but this story was different.
5: — It was certainly kind of one of the darkest places I've gone as a reporter.
2: When you were going through this process and talking to people, you talked to correctional officers, you know, was it difficult to get people to go on the record for it because of fears or...
5: Yes, of course. Uh, Everybody's really scared of retaliation and that's part of the whole story with Val. You know, some people describe it as like a high school-like atmosphere where everybody knows everybody and then um, it's really easy for someone to be shunned and then that makes them makes their work more dangerous and the job more dangerous. So nobody who was an employed correctional officer and even a couple of the retired ones I talked to were not willing to go on the record.
2: Wes says something that really stuck out to him and that there just isn't enough research on is the long-term impact of doing this work.
5: One thing I wanted to look into was just the pattern of the mental health treatment and the medications that people are prescribed and does anyone actually end up healing or getting better after suffering through some of this stuff or is there just this trail of broken former correctional officers out there
2: we tell them this is something we are looking into Wess's article titled Correctional Officers' Death Exposes Hazing, Toxic Culture at California Prison, published in April of 2021. It's how we first heard about Valentino's death, and it goes into the discrimination that Valentino faced.
1: Once that article hit, Garland was walked off, and a lot of stuff started to happen over there.
2: Daniel Garland, the guy who'd called Valentino homophobic slurs, Marcus Jordan, the one who'd used the N-word, were both under investigation, along with other officers in the ISU. Steele texted, "Justice is beginning to simmer, steel. But Val Senior's response was a lot more measured.
1: I thought that okay, that's that's step one. That's good. Everything else from here on out is going to be. Systematic, they're doing something, but they didn't do shit after that. It was just like, here's a piece of raw meat, and that's it.
2: That internal affairs investigation that had started with Chris McGraw resulted in the dismissal of Marcus Jordan and Daniel Garland. Among other things, the department found their treatment of Valentino violated state employee laws and the department's code of conduct. Two other guys on the squad got a 10% pay cut, One of them had called Valentino half-patch, and they'd both chimed in with derogatory texts in the group thread. But these four officers appealed their discipline. Like all correctional officers, they'd have access to an extensive appeals process and representation by union lawyers. The lawyer for those four officers declined to let us speak to her clients for this podcast. She wrote in an email, quote, CDCR imposed excessive and unreasonable discipline against my clients for personal communications between work friends on their personal cell phones that took place almost entirely off-duty. And she said her clients are still fighting to overturn this discipline. There was a big shakeup in the squad, and the institution reassigned basically all the officers who'd worked with Valentino. But the people who were really in charge, like Warden Jeff Lynch, remained in charge. What were
3: you hoping would happen when the Sacramento Bee article came out?
1: I'm hoping for what I'm hoping for now, closure. and Everyone throws that J word around, but just justice.
2: The article did get some important attention, though. A guy in the district attorney's office for Yolo County, where West Sacramento is located and where Valentino died, saw his death by fentanyl as part of a pattern. Overdoses from the lethal drug were skyrocketing in the state. — Mostly from fentanyl overdoses last year in California alone. — And in the county. — We've seen over a dozen. People die of fentanyl-related overdoses in the last year and a half. In June, this is two months after the article came out in the paper, the DA's office issued a press release. DA Rise-It compares it to DY offenders who break the law again and kill someone in the process. They'll be looking... They were changing their policy. Fentanyl deaths were now going to be investigated as potential homicides.
3: You're selling that drug, knowing that it may be
4: laced with fentanyl. When somebody dies, you should pay the price. A few
5: grains of salt
4: of fentanyl can kill you. DA Jeff Reisig is confident the policy will hold up if challenged.
2: And these cases would be investigated by a special regional task force called Safe Streets that involved the FBI, Sacramento County law enforcement, and a representative from the Yolo County DA's office. At the bottom of the release, the DA's office included a photo of one of the victims of the recent uptick in fentanyl poisoning. It was Valentino Rodriguez in his CDCR uniform on the day he graduated from the academy. The new FBI agent on the case, part of that Safe Streets task force, got in touch with Val Sr. via email. "Quote:
3: We are looking into slash investigating the death of your son with several groups inside the FBI, as well as our local agency partners. Being as there are several complications to your son's passing, the investigation is going to be more complex and time-consuming.
1: Initially, I was told this is a very complicated case. It's going to take time. You need to be patient for several reasons.
2: But just a little while later, Valsenior says the agent called back and said he was closing his investigation.
1: I asked him why. He goes, there's nothing on the phone. I says, there's all kinds of stuff on the phone. he got phone records. He's got two burn calls. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff.
2: In an email, the FBI said they could not comment on the Safe Streets task force or any potential investigation into Valentino's death. Val Sr. felt like he was stuck in a game of hot potato, being passed from one agency to another.
1: This, all this is, like, like overwhelming.
2: Mm-hmm. And this long journey of disappointments he's been on, it's part of why he's agreed to talk to Julie and me and share all the evidence he's gathered, so we can try to figure out what's going on here and if there's something law enforcement missed. Did
3: you find the bundle lever?
2: On one of our trips to Val Sr.'s home in West Sacramento, he goes to a bookshelf in his living room, and he pulls out a plastic pill bottle. He hands it to Julie, who holds it up to the light.
1: So in there is um, a balloon, small balloon.
2: Inside the bottle, there's a Ziploc baggie with a white pill and two capsules in it, and a small round package about the size of a nickel wrapped in black plastic, which Val Sr. believes came from New Folsom.
1: And mm-hmm. these baggies, which on Bell's phone shows, these are the way you would log into evidence. Mm. I don't know what's inside the capsules.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay, well, so I'll try to figure out what we can do to have this analyzed.
1: I'm curious what's in the balloon.
2: We want to find out if what's in the bindle or the pills matches the drugs in Valentino's system when he died. So Julie and our producer, Stephen Rascone, ship it off to a place that does forensic drug testing for law enforcement. And then we jump on a call. Do you have to, um, like, package it a certain way? Yeah, you use the special
3: packaging, double plastic Ziploc bags and also a canister that you dropped it into and twisted and closed. And um, yeah, and then bubble wrap around
2: that. All right, cool. So it's on its way. It's like literally in the mail on its way to the. Yes,
5: so that's like you, we can cross that off, which is great.
2: That's awesome. The company says it'll take 30 to 60 days to get the results back. Coming up next time, we start to get a sense of what it was like to be incarcerated at New Folsom.
5: They would cut us. They will handcuff us and beat us,
4: you know, and um, wasn't a whole lot we could do.
2: And one of the guys I wrote to from Steele's memo calls me back.
1: You got to be strong, man. Come on, Suki, if you let shit like this get to you, then, man, all this is for nothing, man. You got to stay strong. Don't worry about me. I can handle my own. You got to stay strong. You got to do this till the end. How they say, like, till the wheels fall off.
2: Finally, we get a deeper sense of Steele's mission. The only good thing that
0: kept me going, there was this uh, officer, his name is Mr. Steele. If it wasn't for him, my son wouldn't be alive today.
2: You're listening to On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom, from KQED. If you have any tips or feedback about the series, you can email us at onourwatch at kqed.org. You can also leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. The series is reported by me, Suki Lewis, and Julie Small. It's edited by Victoria Mauleon. It's produced and scored by Stephen Rascone and Chris Agusa. Sound design and mixing by Tarek Fouda. Jen Chien is KQED's Director of Podcasts, and she executive produced the series. Meticulous Fact-Checking by Mark Betancourt. Additional research for this episode by Kathleen Quinn and Laura Fitzgerald, students in the Investigative Reporting Program at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism, whose chair, David Barstow, provided valuable support for the whole series. Special thanks to Rasan Thomas of Ear Hustle, Sandia Dirks of NPR, and KQED health correspondent April Domboski. Original music by Ramteen Arablui, including our theme song. Additional music from APM Music and Audio Network. Funding for On Our Watch is provided in part by Arnold Ventures and the California Endowment. And thanks to KQED's Otis R. Taylor Jr., Managing Editor of News and Enterprise, Ethan Toven Lindsay, our Vice President of News, and Chief Content Officer Holly Kernan. Thanks for listening.